Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, coming to you from very hot Denver, Colorado. Hope everybody's staying cool this summer. We are back for part two of our discussion about Ruben Zuno Arce, and specifically, who was Mr. Zuno, and today, why is he important now, before we get started, I want to remind you of where we were last week and make one really important caveat. So last week, we talked a little bit about Mr. Zuno, his background, um, the two trials that he had, uh, Zuno 1, where he was tried with um, Mata Ballesteros and Jose Bernabe Ramirez and Javier Vasquez Velasco, where Hector Cervantes Santos was the primary witness against him. We talked about Zuno 2, where um, a new trial had been ordered because of some misstatements in Mr. Medrano's closing arguments. We talked about Godoy and Lopez, their testimony at Zuno 2. Um and then we talked a little bit about um, some other issues relating to Mr. Zuno um, and uh, the cross-examination of Jaime Kirkendall and a few other things. And um, then we got to where we're at today, which is, all right, why is Mr. Zuno in particular important? And maybe even broader than that, what can we learn about the prosecution, the investigation, by looking at Mr. Zuno's case and his situation. Now, we're going to go through um, the last appeal, or the last post-trial appeal that directly relates to a trial from uh, 1990. 1993 is when the, the brief was filed, as you might remember, the um, the closing Arguments in Zuno 2 was December 16, 1992. Verdict came out shortly after that. But we're going to look at the issues raised. And I want to make this point, and I think it's really important. The standard for innocence or guilt in a criminal trial is beyond a reasonable doubt. This, you know, a criminal trial involves lots of, of, Human instincts, you've got a jury who's going to view things different ways, you've got a judge that's going to react certain ways. I'm not trying to say whether or not Mr. Zuno's conviction was right or wrong. I think you all can can identify kind of where my loyalties lie, where my feelings are. But I think it's much, much more important than that today. You know, 1993, I was writing a brief or helping to write a brief for a specific purpose. But today, I want it to be something bigger. It's not, was Mr. Zuno properly convicted? It's, can we take the totality of circumstances surrounding his case and can we learn anything important about the investigation, about the prosecution? about the people involved in the case, about the people involved now who are trying to advocate certain theories, 
who are trying to make themselves the experts on this case. That's the point of today, and uh, I hope you'll find it interesting and follow along with me. Okay, so let's talk about the appeal. Again, Zuno 2, Godoy Lopez testify, Cervantes Santos nowhere to be found. Because it was only Mr. Zuno and Dr. Alvarez Machine, it was a much more streamlined case than the first trial. Mr. Zuno is found guilty and sentenced. Um, and as you know, he ended up dying in federal prison. On appeal, Zuno's defense team raised a number of issues. And I want to walk through those for the purpose that, that we talked about. We're not going to spend a great deal of time on them, but I want everybody to understand that there were issues in the case. There were points of appeal that, again, may not have been legally sufficient at the time or may not have been sufficient to warrant a new trial or reversal of his conviction, but are certainly things that we want to look at now and we want to give weight to. I think one of the arguments that I have relating to the last narc and the statements in there, including the statements by former AUSA Medrano, is that it ignores lots of these uh, these issues, which add up, I think, to something significant. So we, on the appeal, there are certain key and and broad statements that we talked about as far as reasons for an appeal. The first and one relates to Godoy and Lopez, um, and to Cervantes Santos, and probably to others. But that simply says the government presented testimony that was false and had to have been known to be false at trial. And, you know, as as I think everybody understands and, and appreciates, the role of a government lawyer, the role of a prosecuting attorney is different than that of any other lawyer involved in the criminal justice system. They have duties that are higher than simply trying to win a case. They have duties that relate to justice and fairness and to constitutional guarantees of due process. And if the government knowingly presented false testimony, that raises issues not only as to the veracity of the, you know, in their case, but also issues of, of fundamental fairness. And whether or not, in the face of false testimony, if you believe that the testimony put on by one or more witnesses was false and known to be false, then there are questions about whether or not justice could ever be served in that case. Of course, one of the primary issues in the the appeal was the fact that the government had presented two fundamentally different cases between Zuno 1 and Zuno 2. And again, 
you know, we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in it and talk too much about it. But Zuno 1, you had Cervantes talking about a certain set of meetings, certain set of, of players involved. And then you had Godoy and Lopez in Zuno 2, and they simply don't match up. Hey, they can't. And we talked, um, and I think we'll, we'll mention it again, but remember a few episodes ago, we talked about the fact that the if you put these all together, you know, all the the alleged planning meetings, you know, they can't figure out if they know who the, the agent is or not. They can't figure out if they've talked to the agent or not, if they offered him money or not. They don't agree on you know, timing or dates or anything else. Simply put, the testimony of Cervantes Santos and the testimony of Godoy and Lopez Romero cannot coexist in reality, okay? One of them is false or they're both false, but there is no way they can both be true, right? Again, that goes back to a question of fundamental fairness, can the prosecution knowingly put on two different cases like this? And, you know, again, the answer may be yes. You may say, sure, they can. They can figure out new things. And I would be more inclined to agree with that philosophy if it wasn't for the stuff that we've learned about Godoy and Lopez which we've talked about before and what we're, which we're going to talk about more as we, we go on here. All right. So government presented false testimony, testimony that they knew to be false. Government presented inherently inconsistent cases. And then there were other things that supported a new trial and evidence that supported a new trial. During uh, the period following the Zuno 2 conviction, there was a great deal of uh, time and effort spent in Mexico by investigators and others to try to learn more about Godoy and Lopez. The nature of the trial was that, that Zuno's defense team didn't really have a significant opportunity to learn about Godoy and Lopez, certainly not to uh, investigate them in any material way prior to the trial. So there was lots of stuff done both by the Zuno defense team and by lawyers representing others in, in, involved in the case um, that came up with a great deal of impeachment evidence um, and or evidence re relating to the character of Godoy and Lopez. And we've talked about a lot of that in the past. And so Zuno's appeal says, look, <laughs> there's enough impeachment of Godoy and Lopez to at a minimum warrant a new trial. One of the pieces of evidence that also was presented to the appellate court was a DEA-6 from an interview with Lyra that was inconsistent with both Godoy and Lopez, and we've talked about that before as well. 
So you have impeachment, but then you also have kind of internal inconsistencies. And then you have Lyra, who, again, doesn't testify. Remember, anybody's watched The Last Narc, you know, it's the, the three amigos and, and you know, the the three guys at, at the the uh, the cemetery under the cross. It's all very dramatic. But, you know, Lyra didn't testify. Lyra doesn't um, present uh, in a way that that um, supported Godoy and Lopez. And he says things that are recorded in that DEA six that are simply inconsistent with Godoy and Lopez. We also talked in the appeal about Cervantes, because again, keep in mind, if, if Cervantes isn't to be believed in Zuno 1, then there should be no Zuno 2, and we'll talk about Cervantes more in a minute, but um, his testimony, just on the face of it, was dubious at best, and the Zuno defense team was able to present phone company statements that contradicted some key testimony of Cervantes, specifically relating to uh, telephone calls to Mr. Zuno during or after the interrogation of Agent Camarena. One of the other things that was done during that period after the the uh, the verdict in, in Zuno 2, in addition to looking at the statements of Godoy and Lopez or the, and the character of those guys, remember there was testimony about meetings occurring in the Las Americas Hotel. Okay? And that was a hotel owned by Felix Gallardo. And they talk about a meeting, at least one meeting, but uh, where uh, they were in a suite they give some description of what the suite looked like and where it was located. They have a large number of traffickers there. They have, the traffickers have a large number of bodyguards, um, drivers, etc. And then you have uh, Manuel Bartlett Diaz and others who allegedly are at that meeting. We've talked about the fact that... Um, it just doesn't make sense that all these people would be at Las Americas Hotel. Remember I told you I talked to somebody in Guadalajara and said, you know, hey, you know, what about the story that Bartlett Diaz was at Las Americas Hotel? And they laughed and said, there's no way Manuel Bartlett Diaz would ever have been got dead in that hotel. But the the more important thing is an investigator went down to the the Las Americas Hotel, met with managers of the hotel and was able to provide pictures and a declaration that said there is not and was not a room or a suite in the hotel that matched the descriptions in the testimony or that otherwise could have held the meetings that were described. Okay, So Las Americas could not have been the site of that meeting and because they testified to it with such uh, specificity that that was the hotel, that definitely called into question the veracity of Lopez and Godoy and the veracity of the totality of their um, their testimony, not just as to that point. And then there was a, a, some testimony at trial 
about an incident that occurred um, on a road in in outside of Muscoda where uh, somebody was stopped with some drugs and and uh, was released, and somebody said that that was pro- that was Zuno. Um, and there was testimony about this, both from Harrison and Lopez. The investigators following up on Godoy and Lopez were able to get an affidavit from uh, Lopez's police supervisor at the time of this alleged incident who said it never occurred. And that was one of the key pieces of evidence that tied or allegedly tied Mr. Zuno to the traffickers. And and again, as we've talked about before, I hate using the term cartel, but because it it gets used so much, somehow tied um, Zuno to the cartel. And if that evidence had been presented, that would have been powerful. Because again, keep in mind, there's very little real connection between um, Zuno and the traffickers. So anything that that would chip away at that testimony would have been important. We talked a little bit last time about um, Lope de Vega, and I promised you that we were going to have another uh, episode almost entirely devoted to Lope de Vega, and we're still going to do that. But on appeal, it's important to note that Zuno's defense team had proffered statements and witnesses um, who would have testified with respect to Lope de Vega and Mr. Zuno's involvement in Lope de Vega, but was not, were not allowed to present that evidence. And lots of lots of different reasons why it wasn't allowed, whether witnesses were available or unavailable, etc. But Zuno's defense team said if they'd been allowed to present that evidence, it would have shown at least four things. It would have shown that the sale was a legitimate arm's length transaction between Mr. Zuno and parties other than Caro Quintero. It would have shown that Zuno delivered the property to the buyer in December of 1984 and that the sale was completed in January of 1985, that is, before Agent Camarena's kidnapping. It also would have shown that Caro was showing the property for the first time after the sale was completed. And again, that would be in January of 1985, but never prior to that. And it also would have shown that Zuno had no knowledge of Caro's subsequent occupation or use of Lope de Vega. Okay, but that was denied. And we're going to talk about Lope de Vega a little bit uh, more in just a minute. The last thing that's important, or sorry, two two last things important on the appeal. One was um, what we'll call Brady violation, and the Brady rule basically requires exculpatory or potentially exculpatory evidence in the hands of the prosecution to be turned over to the defense, and there's timing issues, etc. Well. Closing arguments in Zuno 2 occurred on December 16th, 1992. Just a few minutes before closing arguments, the defense was given two reports that detailed 
FBI and DEA interviews with a former MFJP officer, later identified as Manuel Ibarra, and Ibarra was involved in the investigations into the Camarena case in Mexico as part of his role as an MFJP officer. What's important is what he says. And and it really comes down to two things. One is Ibarra says in these interviews that his investigation led to a potential or possible alternative theory for the motivation or Caro's motivation to kidnap Agent Camarena. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the exact allegations. You can find them in um, my book uh, if you want to. I'm um, sensitive to Agent Camarena's legacy, sensitive to who's listening to these podcasts, and so I'm not going to talk about it. But, But the important thing is that right before closing arguments, Zuno's defense team received a report that said an MFJP officer investigating in Mexico said, hey, here's another reason that Cairo might have wanted to kidnap Agent Camarena. And the defense team had no opportunity to do anything different. The second thing that's important in these reports regarding uh, the the um, interviews of Manuel Ibarra is that he says that he interviewed Comandante Alfonso Velasquez. Okay. Velasquez acknowledged, agreed, admitted that he was at Lope de Vega for Camarena's interrogations. He provides a list of witnesses or a list of people who were at Lope de Vega during those interrogations. Do you know who he doesn't list? Ruben Zuno Arce. What else is interesting? Those reports, or that particular report, that particular interview of Ibarra was conducted by Hector Bereas. And yet, That evidence, that exculpatory evidence, that evidence that could have called into question or at least disputed the allegations of Godoy and Lopez was not able to be introduced at trial. The last thing about Zuno 1 in the, or Zuno 2 in the appeal is David Macias Barajas he had testified uh, fairly extensively at Zuno 1 where he said that uh, he didn't know Zuno, that he was pressured and punished by Boreas in an effort to get him, uh, Macias, to testify against Zuno. Judge Rafiti did not allow that testimony at the second trial, deeming it to be irrelevant for a variety of reasons. Okay. So now we've got a very good picture of Mr. Zuno, 
the Zuno trials, the issues on appeal, what type of conclusions or analysis can we draw from that? Or why, to, to go back to the title of this, how we started this, why is Mr. Zuno's story important? Well, one of the things that I think is important is why was Zuno picked up in the first place? Remember, we've talked about the, you know, the path towards the perjury charge and then later to the murder charge. We've talked about the dubious timing of everything. Um, It seems fairly likely that there were at least two motivating factors. One is, you know, keeping in mind that Zuno was the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico. His father had been in politics. His family was known and reputable and, or, uh, you know, involved in lots of businesses. His family may have had connections to, to Cuba and, and, you know, Mr. Zuno went back and forth to the United States. There was an overarching focus at some point in the investigation, particularly once Garate Bustamante becomes involved, to try to implicate Mexican officials. And I think it's highly likely that the thought process was if we arrest Zuno, if we threaten him with life imprisonment, he's going to roll on other government officials. I shouldn't say other government officials. On government officials uh, in Mexico. That simply didn't happen. Now, kind of the flip side to that, or something similar, is the idea that Zuno's arrest and his family connections would embarrass Mexico. And if you think about it, there would be reasons why you would want, if you're in the government, you'd want to embarrass Mexico at that point. Um, You know, just in general, the notion that the Mexican government hadn't done enough to investigate the Camarena case, hadn't done enough in the war on drugs in particular, you know, would... This type of embarrassment, the, you know, the, the former president's brother-in-law arrested as a cartel member, would that lead to more help on the war on drugs? Um, would it lead to more help on extraditing Carlo Quintero, Felix Gallardo, Fonseca, who are in jail in, in Mexico at this point? I'm not sure. Um and, and a quick aside, you know, this focus on Mexico and Mexican involvement, you know, really stems from, I think, a, a deep-rooted belief that you see in, you know, Narcos Mexico, you, you see it in other places, you, we've talked about it, that there was a, some type of symbiotic relationship between the cartels and some figures in the Mexican government. I don't think there's any question that there was some type of relationship where money was paid and people were paid off and 
tips were made and somehow they were designed so they both could, you know, could survive together and, and question whether that's still the case in Mexico. And, and I think we can, can generally say that corruption in Mexico is an accepted part of life in Mexico and political life. So the idea that the Mexicans, you know, that the Mexican government had allowed Carl Quintero and Fonseca and Felix Gallardo to grow and to get, you know, a, a sense of, of importance sufficient that they could kidnap a DEA agent, that they could interrogate a DEA agent, that they could eventually kill a DEA agent, you know, is something that you know, I can see where a lot of people would want to bring that out. What's interesting about the last narc, when you think about it, is the last narc does the exact opposite. It completely lets the Mexican government off the hook. Because it says, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) It wasn't the Mexican government. It wasn't officials on the take. It was the CIA. And to me, that's a very, very dangerous and frankly, a very wrong approach to the case. Um, and again, that's a little bit of a side, but I wanted to to bring that up. So, Zuno's story is important, one, because it reflects the U.S. government's focus on the involvement of Mexican officials, and that ties directly into, you know, when... Bustamante gets involved in things and all of a sudden, you know, nobody's talked about these meetings and, uh, you know, people like Manuel Bartlett Diaz being involved. And then here comes Hector Cervantes Santos. And now it's a grand conspiracy years after the fact, here it is. So that's number one. Number two, Zuno's case shows Dramatic evidence, in my mind, dramatic evidence of government overreach, government knowing overreach, all right? You may say to yourself, after we're finished with this, or even as we're going through it, that's fine. I want my government to overreach in order to find people who killed somebody like Agent Camarena, and I can accept that, but we have to accept as a premise that the government dramatically overreached in this case. And let's talk about how they did. So again, Zuno 1, the primary witness against Zuno and others, was Cervantes Santos, right? Cervantes Santos then, after that trial, recants and says, oh, hell no. That, that's not right, and let me tell you all the reasons it's not right. First of all, he says um, that Boreas, that he once said to Boreas and Medrano, I've never seen Zuno or Manuel Bartlett Diaz in person in my life. Cervantes says that Boreas then said, sure you did. You just don't remember that you did, but you will remember it in a few days. Just give it time. 
He also says that Medrano told him to sleep with a photo of Zuno under his pillow so he'd never forget the face. Now, you know, not surprisingly, both Bereas and Medrano have said that didn't happen. Fine. But we'll talk about that. Um, he also says that he falsely implicated uh, Bernabe Ramirez and Mata on the instructions of Mr. Bereas and Mr. Medrano. The government told him to implicate Bernabe Ramirez and Mata Ballesteros. Listen to this. Cervantes says that over a period of six years, he and his family were paid over $500,000. That's $6,000 monthly payments. Now, he also says, by the way, that uh, he was promised $200,000 at the end of the trial, but the government only paid half of it, and that's part of the reason that he was complaining now about the prosecution and saying what really happened and, and all of that good stuff. So, we have that. We also have, interestingly enough, a story from the L.A. Times. At one point, the L.A. Times went through a lot of this evidence kind of after Zuno 2, after some of the investigations that have been done that we've just talked about, you know, the disputes about Las Americas Hotel and, and, and the like. Through the LA Times, Cervantes took a lie detector test. I think he actually took three, but he took at least one that was administered by a former LAPD lieutenant. Impeccable qualifications, has taught an FBI polygraph course, etc., Cervantes passed. Okay. The examiner, again, a former LAPD lieutenant, says that he finds it highly unlikely, highly unlikely that Cervantes could have passed the tests that were administered if he had not been being truthful. Let's say that. Cervantes, after his recanted, re-recanted, which may have actually occurred. At a minimum, that just shows this guy shouldn't be trusted for anything. And are you going to put somebody in prison for the rest of his life? And that's what happened with Mr. Zuno. That's maybe what happens with with um, Mr. Mata. It, 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 recognizing issues with Mata. But Mr. Zuno, you, you put him in prison for the rest of his life based on... Cervantes' testimony, and he has no credibility. He has absolutely no credibility whatsoever. And, and let's think about that. So let's go back to the idea that the government presented false testimony, or inconsistent testimony, sorry, between Zuno 1 and Zuno 2. And and to borrow a line from Manny Medrano in the last arc, let there be no doubt. They are inconsistent. 
to never acknowledge that in any way, shape, or form. To continue to put on witnesses who were brought to the United States by Garate Bustamante. And we're going to talk about him in just a second. Who were of dubious character. Whose statements may have been manipulated. Whether in Mexico or elsewhere. And to put them on knowing that they contradicted each other really has to make you question the government's actions. Now let's talk about Godoy and Lopez for just a second. What do we know about Godoy and Lopez? Well, in addition to all the character stuff, all the bad stuff they did including, you know, domestic abuse during the trial in the United States. We also know that their testimony, you know, doesn't line up, that there are internal inconsistencies. We know that Godoy admitted that he didn't work for Fonseca in November and December of 1984, um, but he testified to Conspiracy meetings that allegedly took place in November and December of 1984. We also know that he signed a confession um, when he'd been interviewed by Mexican officials. And he never mentions Ruben Zunoarce at all. We know that the first time he saw a picture of Ruben Zunoarce when he was being interviewed by the DEA, he didn't say anything about him being involved in the cartel. Uh, We know that almost all of Hector Perez's allegations in the last NARC come from Godoy and Lopez Romero. Something else that is true, but not publicly known, is that there have been at least one probably more internal DEA investigations relating to the veracity of these witnesses and the use of them, the manipulate potential manipulation of them by Mr. Medrano, or sorry, uh, by Hector Boreas. And I'm informed and believe that as a general rule, the DEA internally looks upon Godoy and Lopez as at a minimum suspect witnesses and at a maximum complete liars. And what's really should, should be the question that we want to know, who vetted these guys? Who let them testify to things that are simply inconsistent? Was it Hector Breas? Was it Manny Medrano? Were there others? And what does that say about our vetting process or their vetting process? Now let's, and, and to talk about that, let's talk about Garate Bustamante. Remember, Garate was a former police commander in Mexico. He had ties to the traffickers, as they all do. 
right shortly before Zuno one, he got involved with Operation Landa, started working with with them, and started providing them witnesses. Keep in mind that prior to this time, and this is like five years, there had been no allegations of a broad conspiracy. Okay. But Garate now starts funneling up dozens and dozens of potential witnesses. And including amongst those, turns out to be Cervantes Santos, Godoy, and Lopez Romero. At this point, I'm not aware of any place outside the DEA that knows how many witnesses there were what the vetting process was for those witnesses, how much money was paid to those witnesses, how many of them um, were given immunity and, and residency in the United States. None of that. There's no public accountability. One of the interesting things about Garate Bustamante was he said, and he's not the only one, but he himself said, that there were times in the process when the prosecution team was so eager to build their case that they simply ignored the warning signs that certain witness statements were suspect. And he said that when he raised those issues, when he raised those issues, he was told... (laughs) Basically, to shut up wasn't his job, that he was simply dismissed. Now, there's there's a couple of different ways to look at this and, and Bustamante's role, or Garate's. Garate, um, in a lot of respects, is really the man who controlled, again, that flow of witnesses. I think Agent Breas would say, See, that's why I saved the day. We didn't have Garate beforehand, and when I got involved, that's how we got Garate. And, you know, he produced these these great witnesses, and, and we convicted people based on that. The fact of the matter is, the people that Garate brought up were of dubious character, and even he says their, their statements were suspect at best. And the fact that the government latched onto them and used them without sufficient vetting should be a concern, not just in this case, but in other cases as well. Because again, that is that the role you want for, for your investigations? Okay. Um, Lope de Vega... I think it's really important to note, again, that um, the DEA was informed by the Mexican officials um, in April of 1985 that uh, Agent Cameron had been taken to Lope de Vega. And again, we're going to talk about Lope de Vega later, but think about that. Just for a second, Agent Camarena's 
abducted on February 7, 1985. It's not until April 12, 1985, after Fonseca's been picked up, after Carl Quintero's been picked up, after Carl Quintero has been interviewed. It's not until April 12 that the DEA finds out that Camarena had been taken to Lope de Vega. And we know that when the DEA got to Lope de Vega and the FBI was there too, and they were doing their forensic analysis, that the, the house had been cleaned for lack of a better word and had been painted, different things had been done. And, um, unquestionably evidence, physical evidence at the location was uh, either removed or covered up or, or otherwise made unusable. But what, what's interesting is, again, you've got that two-month period, you know, all of February, all of March, part of, of April, when the DEA, looking for evidence, looking to find Camarena, um, you know, where, where they don't hear about Lope de Vega at all. Find that very odd. And again, we're going to talk about it a lot, but what's important is, and this is all in, in Jaime Kirkendall's book. And when we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, I told you find his book because it's very, very informative. And there's lots of details in there that you're not going to find anyplace else. But he says in there that when the Mexican official said, Hey, it went to Lope de Vega, they said, that's Caro's house and it had been sold by a member of the Zuno family. And he further says that the DEA talked to Ricardo Sanchez Barba, who confirms that the the house was sold by camera or by Zuno to the Sanchez Barba family. Um, and they had their own little real estate company. But it had been sold and then it was later um, you know, purchased by or became Carl Quintero's. But that that was all a legitimate transaction and that it, the public statements of um, Ruben Zunoar said with respect to the house and the public records all verified that. Okay? So consistent with that, remember, Kirkendall says they talked to Ricardo Sanchez Barba. On appeal, the Zuno defense team says, hey, we proffered the testimony of Dr. Ruben Sanchez Barba, who again was one of, you know, owned that real estate company. And Sanchez Barba would have said all the things that, that we talked about earlier. That Zuno didn't know that it was consummated before and uh, you know, that Zuno had nothing to do with it, knew nothing about Caro Quintero, but we, the Zuno team wasn't allowed to present that testimony. To be fair, there is a deed that shows that the recording date for the sale of Lope de Vega is in June of 1985. And the government used that date to call into question the legitimacy of the transaction. Never mind that the Zuno team tried to present expert testimony that would have shown why that occurred. And it has to do with Mexican law 
and the time frame surrounding um, Mr. Zuno's acquisition uh, and then uh, transfer of the property in relation to his marital status, et cetera, et cetera. Not important. So there is that deed out there. But you may be asking yourself, okay, at, at trial, what did the government prove about Lope de Vega? And my answer is almost nothing. And I'm going to point out two quotes from Mr. Medrano in his closing. So he says, I submit to you that there's something fishy about this transaction. Okay. He also says, the point of all this is that the transaction for the sale of Lope de Vega has a funny odor. Something's not right here. Again, something smells funny here, ladies and gentlemen. And what smells funny, I submit to you, is that Zuno is, in fact, a member of this cartel. So the answer is the government was able to you know, question the transaction, but there was certainly no evidence presented. And if there had been evidence presented, it would have been in the closing arguments, but there's no evidence that shows that Mr. Zuno sold to Caro Quintero, knew that he was being transferred to Caro Quintero, or otherwise had anything to do with Caro Quintero in relation to Lope de Vega and the sale of Lope de Vega in January of 1985. Um, one of the other things, we're going to spend a great deal of time in another episode coming up talking about Lawrence Victor Harrison, who goes by a variety of other names, his role in the Zuno case has already been described. One of the things I want to keep have you keep in mind, again, when we're talking about this prosecutorial misconduct or overreach, a government overreach, uh, I, I hate to promote the book Eclipse of the Assassins for reasons that are obvious from things we've talked about before. And again, if you read my book, it'll become increasingly clear as to why I have issues with that book. But it is worth noting that even Harrison alleges and makes statements about threats he had received from Hector Boreas about his testimony, about testifying, you know, in support of the government theory. There's one place in the book where Harrison says that um, Boreas had said, you know, I made you a lawyer and I can take it away from you. There are other things. And we're going to, again, we're going to talk about Harrison, but that, those statements and, and statements in a book that really supports Hector Boreas and supports his theories and believes Boreas and, you know, believes Harrison. It shows a continuing pattern of threats, of punishment, of coercion to get witnesses to say what the government wanted them to say. 
And as we continue to talk about things, always keep that in mind. Again, that Harrison, somebody we're going to talk about a little bit before. All right. One last thing that we're going to talk about is the allegation that in Zuno 2, Jaime Kirkendall testified for, gave testimony that helped Ruben Zuno Arce. And keep in mind, go, go back to that great scene in the last arc. After Kirkendall testifies, Madrano and Breas are in the elevator, and Madrano says, you might as well pull that gun out and shoot me because we just lost the case. It, it's it's ridiculous beyond ridiculous, but we'll <laughs> we'll put that to the side. But what's what's interesting is it's not true. It's not true. And how do we know it's not true? All right. What do we know about the testimony? We talked last week that there was that interview between Kirkendall and Zuno. And Zuno's defense team says, hey, Zuno came up voluntarily right and he answered all his questions. And Mr. Kirkendall agreed with that. And then... There is the big question. Mr. Kirkendall, you had no evidence that Mr. Zuno was involved in the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena after you completed his or your interview with Mr. Zuno. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. So, this is Hector's great revelation that, oh my God, Kirkendall had to have been involved because that's the only reason he would be giving testimony for somebody like Zuno Arce, right? And everything that that he says about Kirkendall follows off of that, right? That the allegation that Kirkendall took money, which we've already talked about, doesn't make any sense. But even if it did. That flows from, why is he taking money? Because he's involved in the cartel. If he's involved in the cartel, that's why he's testifying in front for Zuno. Okay. What's interesting, though, is... (coughs) Excuse me. The defense has always said, look, all that said was that at one point in time, at the time of, let's go back. Let's look at the, what's the question again? After your interview, there was no evidence that you knew of that Mr. Zuno was involved in the kidnapping of Enrique Camarena. Mr. Madrano, remember I told you last week that Kirkendall testifies. And then there's this uh, off the record or outside the jury Discussion between all the counsel and the judge. And it becomes painfully clear that Mr. Madrano knew, specifically knew, that that's all that was being said. Madrano says at one point, if Mr. Medvin's question is, at this point in time, 
in or about February or March of 1985, this witness has any information that Zuna was part of the cartel responsible for kidnapping. And and then it skips on. Then it is our position that we can ask either this witness or subsequent agents that are coming up shortly at a subsequent time, did those agents have information that he wasn't involved in the kidnapping? So he says, you know, my concern in his closing argument is he's going to stand up and say that in February of 1985, 100 agents are in town. They don't have any information that Zuno Arce was involved. And the court says, then you can say in po- and point to what was learned afterwards and the testimony of your own witnesses here that implicate that. I don't know why that's a problem. So remember, the allegation is that Bereas and Medrano are sitting there at trial. Kirkendall called on cross-examination. Not called by Zuno's defense, but called on cross-examination that they're sitting there listening to Agent Kirkendall testify, and they say, oh my God, we've lost the case. This is horrible. He is an evil man because he clearly is testifying on behalf of Zuno Arce. And Madrano says right here in the transcript, and the court acknowledges all he's saying is at one particular moment in time, Agent Kirkendall had no information that Zuno Arce was involved. And you know why that makes sense? Because for the next five years, nobody had any information that Zuno was involved. If people are going to make outrageous allegations, they damn well ought to have proof. And more importantly, if you're going to televise it, if you're going to put it on, if Mr. Medrano, who said this, is going to appear in the same telecast, shouldn't they get it right? And they didn't. They didn't in this case. They didn't with Godoy and Lopez. They didn't with a lot of the witnesses of Bustamante. Garate, sorry. They didn't with respect to Lope de Vega. Why? Because the government here was more concerned about prosecutions than justice. There. I told you how I feel. You can draw your own conclusions. But the Ruben Zuno Arce story is important. Because it shows the power of the government. It shows the overreach of the government in the investigation and prosecution. Investigation, keep in mind, that really started five years after the fact. Again, Garate doesn't come up until close to the the Zuno 1 trial in 1990. So these are things that everyone should be concerned about. They should cause everybody pause. And then I also go back to the question of how many witnesses were there? How much money was there? 
how many were given sanctuary in the United States? Those are questions we don't have the answers to. Okay. Next week, we're, we're going to come back and talk about something else. But we've got a couple of things in play, so I'm not really sure what next week is going to be about. But want to give you a preview. We're going to talk about Harrison coming up for sure. We're going to talk more about Lope de Vega coming up for sure. Um, we're going to talk either next week or shortly after about Operation Padrino, how it relates to the Zuno investigation. And then looking forward a little bit, we've got um, some witnesses with respect to the CIA's alleged involvement that are either going to, I'm either going to describe transactions with them or they're going to appear. And we're also going to talk about the relationship between the the fall of the Guadalajara cartel, again, for lack of a better word, and current uh, situations with respect to the cartels in Mexico. We talked about that a little bit. We're going to have a witness or two talk about that. Uh, and then we're also going to move on a little bit, talk some about a, a few other things relating to uh, the the flow of drugs into the United States and how that, again, has been impacted by the, the cartel situation. One other thing to look forward to, uh, reworking the website, and in a few weeks, it is going to be the definitive the definitive site for everything important relating to this case. We're going to have all the documents. We're going to have uh, additional ways to access documents. We're going to have pictures, lots of different things. It's going to be very, very good. Uh, again, I want to make a plug for Jaime Kirkendall's book. If you're at all interested in a lot of the little facts that we've talked about, make a plug for my book, Someone Had to Die, um, which I think touches on and and describes in more detail some of the things we've talked about on these podcasts. Again, thank you for putting up with me for an hour and two minutes now. And look forward to talking to you next week. And in the meantime, have a great week. And again, everybody stay cool. <laughs>